want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this evening to Matthew chapter 19. And we'll be looking at verses 16 through 22. And then afterwards, we'll turn in our Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 44. We will be considering the 10th commandment, our final commandment in our series, looking through the Ten Commandments, living for God. We're going to consider that under the heading of keeping the heart pure, keeping the heart pure from Matthew chapter 19. Beginning in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. May we receive it with a believing heart. And then we'll turn now, secondly, to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44, which can be found on page 250 in the forms and prayers in the pew in front of you, page 250. Beginning in question 113, what is God's will for you in the 10th commandment to which we respond in unison? that not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our hearts, we should always hate sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long, we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit. So that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Well, I want to begin this morning, blessed congregation, by inviting you to turn back with me to question 92 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which states the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Tenth Commandment deals with 
coveting. The wrongful desire, the wrongful desiring, I should say, of what is not yours. This commandment is an invisible, internal, and invasive look into our own hearts that there is something deep within our natures that needs to be addressed. And that is wrongful desires. You can be as young as three-year-old and covet. When you see a young person who maybe has some candy or a toy you want and there's envy and jealousy that rises up in their hearts. Every parent knows what this looks like. But coveting is not something we mature out of. You can be 33 and desire someone else's job, their spouse, or their home. You can be 93 and covet someone else who maybe has a more attentive family. See, no matter who you are, where you are, how old you are, we can all easily fall prey to the sin of desiring someone else's things. So what is coveting? Not a commandment that we talk about that often, but I like to define it this way. It's the wrongful desire of what is not yours. The wrongful desire of what is not yours. And now there's nothing wrong with having desires. You can have longings, wants, thoughts of something nice. But as Kevin DeYoung puts it, I like the way he says it, there's nothing wrong with stopping to notice what other people have so that you can give thanks to God. But the problem is that when we stop to notice, we so often stop to be thankful. Stop being thankful. We covet when we want what others have for ourselves. And so our desires can become covetous. And this is the movement from saying, what a beautiful house you have. Beautiful property. Thank God. To saying, I wish I had their house. What a wonderful job you have. What a blessing that must be to spend time with your family or have your needs provided for to saying, well, I want His job. Coveting is saying, I thank God that you're married. But if only I could have married her husband. See, when we think this way, we forget that God has promised that He would provide for all of our needs according to the riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. You see, at the core of coveting is a lack of trust in God. We are called to trust Him. That He will provide for all of our needs, both body and in soul. And so the Ten Commandments remind us not only that God wants us to keep our religion pure, that's Commandments 1-4, through And that we need to keep our relationships pure. That's commandment five. And that we need to keep our body pure. That's commandment six through nine. But the commandment, the tenth commandment, I should say, is also a call to keep your heart pure this evening. That even in the deepest recesses of who we are, we are to be known as those who trust. In Christ. I want to follow a simple outline from the catechism this evening. I want to show you the idol, the commandments, 
and then the goal. The idol, the commandments, and the goal. And I want you to first answer a question for me this evening. Fill in the blank. I would be happy if I just had. What's your answer to that question? I would be happy if I had a nicer house, some people might say. A spouse, children, good looks, success, spotless health. For The problem is that for most of us, the answer to that question becomes our functional God. A person and a place or a thing that we cannot live without. And in our Scripture lesson this evening, we see a story where we learn what one particular young man couldn't live without. And that is riches. See, this story of the rich young ruler is described in all three synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But who is this man? See, Matthew tells us, if you look in verse 22, that he is a rich man. We read in verse 20 that he is young. Luke tells us that he is a ruler. And so we refer to him as the rich young ruler. He had some position of prominence, maybe a ruler of one of the local synagogues, but whatever he was, what we need to be certain of is that he had a highly regarded reputation. But Mark adds a very important nuance to this character. In Mark chapter 10, verse 17, we learn that he had a problem. He had a problem in his heart. His soul had found no rest. And so he runs to the feet of Jesus and he bows before Him and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Wow! Do you see this? This young man is serious about salvation. And what this request shows to us is that this young man realizes that he has not yet attained to eternal life. His spirit is disquieted. He desires salvation. And he comes to the right place, doesn't he? He comes to Jesus Christ. This is an incredible seeker of the Gospel. No wonder it says in Mark's Gospel that Jesus' interactions with, in Jesus' interaction with this man, it says that Jesus saw him bow before him and it says he loved him. In Mark 10, verse 21. But do you see the problem here? He makes a tragic mistake. In verse 18, we see that he comes to Jesus not because he is seeking the Gospel. Look what he says in verse 18. What good thing shall I do? This is salvation by works, folks. He is coming looking for the secret ladder to heaven. That he can climb up by his own strength and come into the presence of God. His spirit is disquieted, but he's going about it the wrong way. This is even clearer from his response to the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And what does he say? All these things I have kept from my youth. Really? You've kept 
them all? Every commandment from your youth. Never lusted a single time. Never angry. Never taken advantage of someone. Never lied. Clearly this young man has not understood the spiritual nature of these commandments. You see, none of us have kept these commandments from our youth. None of us, we can say, have even kept these commandments since we got out of bed this morning. And so Jesus, the burden that He has on His heart is that He needs to show this young man the nature of the law. That it's not about do this and get to heaven. The law is meant to show us our sin. But what law does Jesus take him to? He takes him to the tenth. The tenth commandment. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor so that you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow Me. Now the 10th commandment doesn't say, if you remember from question 92 of your catechism or Exodus chapter 20, the 10th commandment does not say sell everything you have. The 10th commandment doesn't say that you must be poor to get into heaven. Or that we have to live an ascetic lifestyle. To be clear, Jesus isn't saying there is another way to heaven. He's saying, young man, you need to look into your heart. You are a slave to your material possessions. There is another idol, there is another God that this young man is bowing down to. And you see, this is so profound because all the other commandments deal with things, for the most part, externally. The first four commandments deal with our religion. We come into the presence of God, how we worship God, what we say about God, the Sabbath day. The other commandments deal with our look, our speech, our deeds. And this commandment is asking, how goes it with your heart? He was outwardly righteous. Maybe even a ruler of the synagogue. He was doing everything right, so to speak. But Jesus says, I see your heart and there's still an idol there. See, the 10th commandment this evening is calling the rich young ruler, but it is also calling you and I to ask, is there something in your heart that has taken the place of God? That's why the catechism speaks about the 10th commandment in such high language. Look at what it says. Not even the slightest thought or excuse me, slightest desire or thought contrary to any of God's commandment should ever arise in our hearts. It's looking at your heart this evening. How is your heart with God? Kevin DeYoung, I quote again, says it's impossible to covet and to love the Lord your God with all your heart. God won't share your heart, believer. And because you know what coveting is, really. Coveting at its heart is idolatry. Coveting at its heart is idolatry. The Apostle Paul actually says this in as clearest terms as you could find in Colossians 3, verse 5. 
where he says to the, the Colossian believers, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But it's not bowing down to a physical idol. I doubt that this young man literally bowed down and worshipped a pile of gold or money. The idolatry that the Tenth Commandment deals with is when we make a God out of our desires. Coveting makes a God of our desires. See, there's nothing wrong with, being, with having desires. Remember, in the rich young ruler's case, there's nothing immoral about being rich. The problem is when our desires take the place of God. When our desires consume us, rule us, and we bow down to them, maybe not physically, but spiritually speaking. By way of example, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be married. Most people long and desire marriage, but does the thought of finding a spouse consume and control you? Another example, there's nothing wrong with wanting children, but does your lack of children control your life and take the joy out of it? There's nothing wrong with wanting to provide for your family, but does the work you do work you to death and take away your time for worship and devotion? See, if you look at the 10th commandment, either in question 92 of the Catechism or in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, you notice it gives you some examples. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet their male servant, their female servant, their ox or their donkey. And we think, I've got those things down. I don't know about you folks, but I haven't coveted a donkey in quite some time. Or my neighbor's ox. But what does the commandment end with? or anything that is your neighbor's. We can make a God of anything, says the 10th commandment. John Calvin puts it this way, our hearts are idle factories. And so Paul, or excuse me, the 10th commandment this evening is pulling back the curtains of your heart and asking you, who is your Lord? Who is your God? Who is your God this evening? And doesn't that take us right back to the first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, this is why we read the Ten Commandments over and over again in our church. This is why we preach through the commandments all the time. Every year we're called to do it because we need to be reminded that we have a God. A God who is infinitely better than the desires we might have of this world and who richly provides. We can trust Him. But how do we deal with covetousness? Maybe this evening you're saying, I recognize that there is a God on my heart that is not the God, Yahweh, the God of hosts. Maybe you're saying this evening, I desire something more than I desire to know the Lord. How do we deal with 
covetousness. And there is actually a famous psalm about covetousness. Psalm 73. When Asaph tells us our, his feet had almost slipped, he was envious of the proud, he was desirous of the wicked, and he didn't know how to deal with his own covetousness. And then he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. How do we deal with the covetousness of our own hearts having desires that we have placed above the will of God is by worship, worship, worship. Get in the presence of God. Adore Him for His beauty. Worship Him in the splendor of His holiness. And in the light of His glorious grace, the things of this earth grow faintly dim. Our idols... Cast them down, O Lord. He needs to be on the throne of our hearts. That's the idol. But the second thing we need to see is the commandments. The catechism wants to draw our attention to the commandments as a whole. As I just mentioned, in our Reformed tradition, we place great emphasis on the Heidelberg or on the Ten Commandments. We read the Ten Commandments every Lord's Day morning. Our catechism has 11 Lord's Days devoted to the Ten Commandments. And here in question, or excuse me, Lord's Day 44, the instructor asked the question, why does God want them preached so pointedly? And in other words, we could say, why are they so important? And you know, John Calvin was really groundbreaking here. He said that there were three uses. The law does three things for us every time we hear them and every time we hear them preached. He says, first, the law shows us God's holiness. And every time we read the law, we are reminded how holy God is. But second, he says the law is pride crushing. It shows us how sinful we've become. And third, It should inspire us to holiness. It shows us the righteousness needed to be in the presence of God. You see, every time we read the law, the Ten Commandments, we should be crying out with the angels, holy, holy, holy are You. These laws are a reflection of His perfect and righteous holy nature. And no one has kept these laws with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength but the person of Jesus Christ. And so when the rich young ruler comes to Him and he calls Him good teacher and our Lord responds, why do you call Me good? There is only one who is good. He is saying there is only one person who fulfills this law. He is saying there is only one person who perfectly keeps this law. There is only one person who every hour of every day keeps this law and it is the one who has come from God and is God Himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. See, there's a curious exchange in Matthew 19. When the young man says, good teacher, and Christ says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And Jesus isn't saying that He is not good. But the problem is is that He is recognizing Jesus as good without recognizing that Jesus is God. Goodness and God must always go together. 
you cannot be good without God. And so when he calls him good teacher, but not recognizing that he is God, it's as if he's saying, you're good by your own strength. You're good by your own might. You've found the secret to heaven that I too am seeking. And Jesus tells him that there is no goodness, there is no holiness, there is no righteousness in man except from God in him. So if the law reflects God's holiness and shows us His holiness, and we cry out, holy, 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 every time we hear the law, we're also confessing, I am not, I am not, I am not holy. You remember that story in Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and the angels have six wings. With two they cover their face. With two they cover their feet. And with two they fly. The angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy. And what's the first thing that Isaiah proclaims? Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips surrounded by an unclean people. The holiness of God reveals the sinfulness of man. So Jesus says to the young man, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother and love your neighbor as yourself. He is revealing and summarizing the law. He is showing him God's holiness. He is showing him what he should be and what he is not. And what the young man should have done is fallen on his face and said, woe is me, like Isaiah He should have beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner like the publican. No doubt he was a virtuous man. No doubt he was the kind of guy you'd want to be around. But he has only a superficial understanding of the law. Christ isn't just concerned with how you look. He is looking at your heart. And even the holiest in this life have only the small beginnings of obedience. The law also shows us what God requires. So if the law reveals God's holiness and it reveals our sinfulness, it also shows us what God requires to get to heaven. One thing that's interesting about this story is did you notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke him? Instead, He meets him at His level. If you would be perfect, He says, Go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He says, if you want to be perfect, you want to go to heaven by your own strength, your own might, this is how you do it. Be perfect. This is so fascinating because Jesus knew He was a sinner. Jesus knew that this man could not get to heaven by His own righteousness. But why did He give him this advice then? And for that matter, why does He give us the law if we can't follow it? Why does God want the law preached so pointedly if we can't obey it? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul reveals why we still need the law. Galatians chapter 3. 
verse 24. It says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. The Apostle Paul says the reason God gave them the law, the reason why Jesus gives this young man the law, and the reason why Jesus gives you the law, so that it would be a guide to Jesus Christ. The old King James calls it a tutor. That it would show us the righteousness we need to get to heaven. And so that we would say and see our own failure. That we would recognize that we can't do it on our own. And that we would look to Jesus for a perfect righteousness. That we would look to Him for a perfect law keeping. That we would say, Lord, have mercy. And that He would freely grant it. See, the law it shows you God's holiness. It breaks you, but it doesn't leave you there. It says, run to Jesus. And see, that's the goal. That's the goal. See your sin and run to Christ. That's the whole point of the law. See your sin and run to Christ. So as Jesus is admonishing Him to do, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and look at what Christ says, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, And follow me. I don't think it's too far to say that in the reading of the law and in the preaching of the law, God is saying to you and to this young man, forsake your idols and follow me. He who is all blessedness, who promises to provide for your every need, who keeps truth forever and will never forsake you, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, says, I am the Lord your God. Forsake the bitterness you have towards those in authority and follow Me. Forsake your anger. Forsake your lust. Forsake your thieving. Forsake your lying. Follow Me. And in those two words, follow Me. Is that not the Gospel call? we would have never been able to go to heaven. It takes all of life to learn how sinful we really are. The standards of God's righteousness are beyond our reach. So when Christ bids us follow Me, He bids us follow Him to the cross. Follow the perfect man who all his life fought against temptation and resisted sin and thought, word, and deed. And who would lay his life down for sinners. See your sin. And follow Him to the cross. See His holiness. And follow Him to the cross. Not that you have to strive day by day so that you might have perfection. Forsake the idol. And come to Me. And so we strive day by day to battle with sin. We don't seek to obey the commandments so that we can get to heaven. We know we can't do it. We seek to obey the commandments because we love Him. Notice what the catechism says our goal is. Perfection. You say perfection? 
How can our goal be perfection? There's no such thing as perfect people. How do we become perfect? And you know, the canons of Dort, I think we're in some ways inspired by this Lord's Day. I don't know for certain, but I suspect this. And Article 5.2, it says this, In the preaching of the law, believers learn to long for the goal of perfection until at last, until they are freed from the body of death, they reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. That's a necessary addition here. That we are not what we should be. But in Christ we are promised that He will bring us all the way back to Eden. He will bring us all the way up to heaven where we will be perfect in the Lamb of God, freed from the body of death, freed from sin. The law calls us there. God is holy. We are sinful. But He has provided a remedy. Perfection to come in Christ. Now before we conclude, there's a warning in this passage, isn't there? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He walked away from Jesus. Not willing to trade his riches for the pearl of great price. Kept the money, but left the Savior. Let us forsake everything for He who is the greatest treasure. Amen. Let us pray. Father in Heaven, we give You thanks that in all of Your commandments that we've gone through these last ten weeks, that You have called us to a purity of religion. You have called us to a purity of heart. You have called us to a purity of soul. A purity of relationships. But Father, You have seen us in Your weakness. And You have had mercy. And You have provided for us a Lamb who is without blemish. A Lamb who laid His life down for sinners such as us. And who bids us now this evening to come and to follow Him. We pray, Lord, that He might expose our idols that rest upon our hearts. That You would rip away those idols and that You might implant in our hearts those commandments that show us, yes, our sin, but also the call. And that they might be, continue to be that tutor and guide who draws us to the goal, which is perfection, when we shall see our Savior face to face and be made like Him. Bless us. To this end we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.